I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good morning. You're listening to 11 to 1 on LMFM. Sinead Brazel here with you and we are straight down to business this morning because... Oh, what a life we have to discuss now because from growing up fatherless and penniless on the inner city streets of Dublin in the 1950s to representing internationally famous artists, Paddy Egan has led a life like no other. And he has some stories to share about the highs and lows of being Ireland's top entertainment promoter. Never before shared stories about working with some of the world's biggest celebrities, all included in his new book, Backstage Pass, A Life in Show Business, giving us a first ever behind the scenes insight into the inner workings of the Irish concert business. I'm delighted to be joined on the line by pioneering music and concert promoter Pat Egan. Good morning, Pat. Good morning, Sinead. It's lovely to be here. Great to chat to you because let me tell you, you have led a life, Pat, quite the life. Growing up, uh, you know, from, I was going to say humble beginnings, but I think that paints a very different picture because life was hard, wasn't it, Pat, in the 1950s? Well, when you're a kid, you you go with the flow. We didn't know any better, and uh, we didn't wish for anything. We were happy just being out on the streets and running around and enjoying ourselves or whatever. But my mom had a very rough time, very rough, uh, because uh, she had four children and she'd no husband, and obviously there were a lot of pressures put on her from the not having any money, number one, but also from the local clergy and stuff like that. They wanted to put us in a home, and uh, my grandmother, thank God, wasn't having any of that. She was a tough woman, and she stood up to the local parish priest at the time and said the uh, Mary's children are going nowhere. So we were blessed to have such a such a strong family, and at the same time, uh, I, it didn't affect me other than the fact that... Uh, I might have got a better education, but I didn't stay in school. I left at 13 and started a job as a messenger boy and uh, it it kind of went on from there. It really did because, you know, it's a real rags to riches story, Pat. You know, as you mentioned, you worked as a messenger boy for less than two bob a week to becoming very well off that you do now, that you are now. I mean, did you always believe that you would do something really great with your life, that you would be successful? Because I think people no, have not, to have... not at all. Really? No, not at all. It was just, it was a very opportune time in the 60s when uh, the entertainment business hadn't developed and become what it is today, which is not really a very nice place today. But in those days, there were a lot of opportunities there uh, because it was all very new after the war and stuff. And then, of course, the Beatles came and you had a cultural revolution and everything else. But it was really a 
a very... I was just lucky at the time was right and I was there and I had a few ideas and I worked hard. That was what mm. I, my mother taught me, uh, you know, I'd go into work at half eight, I'd be sitting waiting for the boss to arrive and I'd still be there at half six in the evening help, helping him to lock up. So it was, uh, I learned that hard work does get you results even without an education. Absolutely. And, you know, that's I was going to chat to you about your work ethic, because, my God, yes, as you say, you know, just a serious grafter. And, and you know, did did it all start then with a love of music or was it a case of being in the right place at the right time? No, it started with music. I was I was taken overcome by by songs that I heard on the radio, like Save the Last Dance for Me by the Drifters, which was a number one in 1960 and the minute I heard it I just I kind of it just had an enormous effect in me. I thought, I have to have some of this or whatever it was. And uh, it went from there. I started to write into radio stations. Mm. Or, well, there was only one radio station. <laughs> then I started to write into Radio Aaron and uh, I got on a few panel things or whatever. But I was never, I've always been a kind of reserved, not you know, shy person as such. Uh, and it was a bit of a mountain to climb to get, get confidence and I suppose it was partly due to a lack of of education or whatever. Yeah, and like you say, you had the street smarts, didn't you, Pat? You know, uh, this well, you've got those, yeah. Yeah, this is yeah. what sort of it served you well. Now, you've written this book. It's called Backstage Pass, A Life and Show Business, which is a real must for music lovers and, and people that are into their entertainment and all of that. But it's quite revealing. It's filled with sex, drugs and rock and roll, isn't it, Pat? <laughs> <laughs> There's there's certainly little sex and not much dr- drugs either. Maybe the odd joint or something, but there's not a there's plenty of rock and roll, all right. There is, there is. So you've got some stories to tell with this, you know, from paying you two fifty quid for one of their first gigs to having a shotgun held three inches from your face. Let, before we get to the shotgun, tell me about you two and the fifty euro for the first gig. I had a couple of record shops at the time and I was starting to run concerts and the Stranglers were a big band uh, in 1978, I think it was, or whatever. Um, and uh, they were, I had them on in Dunleary in the top hat and we'd sold out 2,000 tickets. There was no opening band on the show, so one of the U2 guys, Larry Mullen, had come into the shop looking for me a couple of times and I... Uh, I gave him the gig. I told him there was only 50 quid in it, but he didn't really care about the 50 quid. They just wanted to be on stage, uh, you know, playing to a big audience and making a name for themselves. But uh, uh, Larry has always been... uh, you know, over the years, I'd bump into him in places, and he'd uh, always be come over and shake your hand and give you, uh, you know, have a conversation with you or whatever. So he did remember the fact that that I paid him the fifty quid. <laughs> and I believe the you two caused a bit of ructions though with the Stranglers, didn't they? That on that particular gig. Uh, well. That, that te- that type of stuff tends to go on and backstage at a lot of gigs. You get you get uh, you know support bands who uh, get the worst dressing room. They might get a couple of bottles of water or whatever. So I think uh, that particular night, uh, one of you two, Adam, I think it was, who took a couple of bottles of uh, of wine out of the Stranglers' dressing room. The Stranglers weren't happy about it, and uh, I can remember one of them shouting at me saying, "Those." 
Checkers will never play with us again. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You two don't need the Stranglers. Look at them now. No, the they, didn't, they, have. they didn't. But uh, <laughs> the Stranglers had a terrific career as well. Of it course, went on for nearly course. 40 years, but never to, not to the same international level as you two did. So that was uh, that was an introduction again. I didn't probably notice at the time. I'm not an enormous U2 fan in the sense that I, you know, when I compared them with Beatles or the Rolling Stones yeah. or even the you know, even bands like the Bee Gees, there are a number of great songs. It's fairly limited, you know. Well, you see this, it's each to their own taste, isn't that exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. Very much so. Yeah. I agree entirely. And that's yeah. the way it should be. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, your career nearly was over when you brought rock giants, Queen, to the RDS. Tell us about this, because you learned a very valuable lesson that day, didn't you? Were very much so. It was one of the first very big gigs in Dublin. It was in the Simmons Court Pavilion, which uh, the RDS had built, and it was uh, it was really a big cow shed. It was, wasn't really suitable for for music, but there was no other venue in Dublin that had that uh, enormous size that could cater for the for the the uh, enormous production that the Queen brought with them. I mean, they had six. 100 overhead lamps at the time which wow. was just absolutely compared to anybody else you know it was amazing so we needed a big room and we had it uh, we went into the Simmons Court the first time it was the very first gig in there in the, the arena and um, it was an enormous success we had 12,000 people at the gig but there had been problems at the front because I didn't have the experience of, of running big gigs mm. and I uh, underestimated the, uh, the fact that the crowd were going to turn up four hours, some of them five hours before the, the gates opened and there had been a big build-up then at the entrance and we were very lucky to avoid a disaster that day. Wow. Uh, yeah, you see, the fans was, be crazy, don't they, sometimes, Pat? They'd be going mad for things like this. Exactly, and it's like you can see them even today. If there's a big heavy metal band on in the in the, you know, in the tree arena yeah. at uh, eight o'clock at night, they're starting to congregate from two in the afternoon. You know, yeah. So that's how they are. Uh, but those all those people take their music very seriously. That's why. Uh, you know, when I ran the Sound Cellar, which was the first progressive record shop, uh, those guys would come in and uh, the fans, and they'd know more about the band than, than I would, and I would have been fairly up to, to date at that stage uh, with who was in what band and who produced this or whatever, but that's the way the fans are. Yeah, and the Sound Cellar, which is still going strong, and I know my own older brother was a frequent visitor to to that particular shop and, and has a lot yeah. of memories from there as well. Uh, let's circle bang back a little bit, though, to the shotgun incident, because the book does detail how you had to try and not provoke some of Dublin's most notorious drug criminals. Isn't that right? Well, 1980s in Dublin was a, a pretty dangerous time because... There were a lot of armed raids and stuff. The the Guardi hadn't quite got on top of everything like they are now with their their cab and all the other other uh, new new laws that came in after Veronica Gerwin died. Uh, so Dublin in the eighties was was a bit of a wild west town. It, you especially at night time, you know, pubs were robbed and there was a lot of criminal activity at the time. So if you were running a nightclub, you were sure to run into these guys in some way or other. So um, generally they came to the club, different different gangs or whatever, and they just wanted to come in and have a drink. And uh, 
relax or whatever it was. So I didn't have a lot of problem with them. In fact, one of them offered me security at the time for uh, anybody giving any trouble. Just let me know, Pat, and we'll get rid of them. So... Um, it was uh, uh, late one night after we closed the waterfront club. I was bringing myself and two bouncers. We were in two cars. We were bringing, we had a good weekend, and we were bringing our money to the bank in Capel Street. And just as I drove up Mary Street into, uh, towards Capel Street, a BMW came flying out of a, side, a small side lane and hit the rear of my car and put me in a 100% spin or whatever. And before I know it, knew it there was a guy standing at the window in a balaclava and a shotgun and cursing at me to get out of the car get out of the car give me the effing money and whatever it was so uh i opened the door of the car and i was so nervous that the so shook that the the bag fell on the ground and uh, i uh I didn't know what to do, but uh, they got away. It all happened in about, I suppose, less than a minute or whatever, and they they were they got eight thousand quid that oh, night off us. Yes. So it was uh, again, you know, it happened so quick mm. that you don't really react in any way other than than being frozen to the spot. Yeah, I'd imagine. And like, did you get it back? Did you care at that point? You were probably lucky enough just to no, escape with your life. We we didn't get it back, of course. Not they they went off. Uh, then we may have got some insurance on it. Mm. I don't know. Insurance was uh, in nightclubs wasn't the best in those days either because they were risky and. Uh, so uh, it was just a robbery and that was Dublin in the 80s. It was very much like that. Yeah. And I mean, like, as well as this, you've got a lot of, you know, backstage secrets, the stories about the stars that you worked with. I did hear something about Van Morrison and a particularly torturous car journey with him. Uh, <laughs> I've been writing about Van for... Uh, <laughs> For years when I was in Spotlight because I was an enormous fan and I still am. And um, I had uh, got a call from him when I was in the office one day inviting me down to uh, a house in Navam to have dinner with him. And I, first of all, I thought it was the guys in the office who were playing a joke on me in Spotlight. Uh, anyway, but it happened to be Van. So I went down to the address in Navam and uh, into the house. The nice housekeeping lady let me in and put me into a big room, big parlor room or whatever and she said Mr. Morrison will be with you shortly about half an hour later she came back and she said Mr. Morrison has changed his mind he's not having any dare <laughs> so you can go more or less but I I have a great great admiration for Van because he was the pioneer of the kind of beat groups and rock groups of the time and he was Superly talented, so I never took any offense when I traveled up from Cork with him after doing a concert for four hours in the car. He never said anything to me. He kind of grunted at me as he got in the car, and he grunted at me as he got out of the car. But that was Van, and you respected him for what his talent. And I still feel the same way about him today. I'm not all that keen on some of the stuff he does now. It's too jazzy yeah. for me. I like Moon Dance and I like, you know, uh, yeah. Brown Eyed Girl and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, that's fun. And uh, he remains pretty much the same by all accounts today. Yeah. Still grunt, grunting at people and uh, <laughs> telling them, you know, if he doesn't like you, you're, oh, you're in trouble. You'll know about it. Uh, the thing I love about this as well with the book is you are donating proceeds uh, from the book to St. Auden's National School. Yeah, I had an office on Merchants Quay for 33 years, and Merchants Quay is a dodgy area of Dublin because the 
Merchant's Key Clinic is there for, for addicts and things like that. So it's a very, you have to be careful there. A guy stuck a needle in me one day walking along the street, but that's another story. Oh, God. Uh, but uh, St. Audience National School is at the back of Merchant's Key. It's very close to the whole drug thing, and mm. it's not really, shouldn't, the drug centre shouldn't be there beside a, a national school. So I do what I can to help them out. Fantastic. I mean, looking back, do you, I mean, there obviously there's some moments that you don't want to ever relive, but what is it like looking back at your career, Pat? It's just realisation of how short everything is and how fast everything goes. And if you don't grab the opportunity on the day and you say to yourself, this isn't going to come around again or this isn't going to happen tomorrow, whether it's to be nice to somebody or whether it's to be, uh, you know, get a, a business opportunity or whatever, you have to you have to live the moment and act the moment. So... I would love to go back and do it all again, knowing what I know now. Um, that's not going to happen. Um, I don't really like getting old. It, I find it uh, your mind is still very active, but you're just uh, you're just not relevant anymore to what's happening around you in terms of trends and music and stuff like that. So. That's pretty oh, Pat, much how I it think, is. I think you will always be relevant and I think what you've said there is so, so important that we should take on board in our in our own lives. It's a fantastic book. It has been a real pleasure sharing some of these really great moments from your life. Continued success with the book. Patch, thank you so, so much for joining me. Thank you, Sinead, very much. Thanks a million. It's called Backstage Pass, A Life in Show Business. What a life. What a life this man has led. There's so many, so much more in this book to explore. There really is. It's out in all great bookshops now by Pat Egan. Backstage Pass, A Life in Show Business. 11 to 1 on LMFM. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.